So we're working through a number of psalms, and the great thing about summer is, in fact, you know, Christchurch Christ Church gets anybody who's leading or preaching a little bit nervous. At about sort of four minutes to five, there's five people in here, and you're thinking, okay, so maybe what I might do is just kind of just step down to the front, and we'll just sit around in a little group, and we'll share a Bible a Bible study together, and then suddenly we've got an explosion of people, so it's great to see you. But we're right in the middle of the holiday season, aren't we? And therefore, what we do is we tend to jump into just individual psalms. We normally work through a series, but going through these individual psalms allows us to just jump in, to be here, to I hope you enjoy some holiday time um, over the summer if that's planned for you. And, and, and you're not kind of missing out on a thread. At the same time, there's the opportunity and I encourage you to catch up uh, online uh, and pick up on any of the others that you might have missed. We're looking at Psalm 73. We're going to look at, at it under seven C's. Seven C's. So the first C is this, the crisis. Crisis. Doug Scott is a rarity in Himalayan mountaineering because he died in old age. <laughs> Most Himalayan mountaineers don't actually make it that far. They die on one of the mountains, but D Doug Scott died uh, an older man. Um, but he recounts a story in 1977 when he was climbing um, a, a, a mountain in the Himalayas in Pakistan called the Ogre. Um, they'd spent a month trying to work out how to get to this, the summit of this 24,000 foot, something like that, uh, rock pinnacle. Uh, and they finally made it. Uh, and it is literally kind of a rock climb up to the top, and they're presumably on the snow at the top. And um, the first rappel back down, the first kind of abseil from the top, Doug Scott slipped, uh, crashed into the rock, broke both of his legs above the ankles. 24,000 feet, just with Chris Bonnington with him. They spent the next 16 harrowing days working out, finding a way to get back to the bottom. The two of them, then supported by two of their other climbers who were part of the support team. Sixteen harrowing days with broken legs above the ankle on a mountain where all that you have to do, all that you can do, is climb with crampons and ice axes and all of that kind of stuff. What, what an incredible experience to go through and how close he came to be just another number in Himalayan mountaineers who didn't make it to the end of life, but died on a mountain. In a way, that little experience, that slip, that incredible support and survival is so reflective of the metaphor that we've got in this psalm. It's exactly that kind of experience that the psalmist is writing about. Look at verse 2 with me. He's reflecting on his 
his decline of his spiritual life. And he's saying, I experienced a crisis. But for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my footing. It's exactly that same picture. It's not an idea that I might have tripped over while I was walking along. I think it's exactly the kind of metaphor that he's got in mind when we think about Doug Scott and Chris Bonington. He slipped. And the slip and fall would have been a killer if he'd have gone. That's exactly the picture that the psalmist is trying to say. I went through an experience in my Christian life where I slipped. I came so close to losing my footing. I came so close to falling. I think for many of us who've been Christians for a long time, we can really relate to that. We can say, I know what it's like. I, I can look back. I have so close to, I have been so close to slipping. In fact, I've called this talk, I nearly slipped every day. Because I think that's the reality, actually, of our Christian life. I nearly slipped every day. And in reality, we probably don't realize how close we've been often to slipping and to falling. And yet the psalm opens up in verse 1 with this amazing statement, surely God is good to Israel. It's written in the Old Testament. What we look at in terms of the, how the Bible unfolds, Israel becomes, as it's God's people in the Old Testament, Israel is God's people in the New Testament. We're part of Israel now in that sense. We are God's people. So it starts by saying, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Then it next, he says, but I had a crisis. That, that sounds like a, a kind of a conflict somehow, doesn't it? How does that work? How can we have this confidence in the goodness of God and at the same time, a reflection on how I have come so close to slipping and falling. That is the source of, that's it, if you like, that's the purpose of our journey uh, this afternoon. That's what we want to understand. If you're thinking about this Christian faith, or maybe it's something that's new to you, very often we kind of interpret Christianity as being something that I decide to believe and I commit myself to it, and once I've committed myself to it, that's it. I'm, I, I'm off and running. <laughs> and it's all going to be great. And you might be stepping back saying, there's so many reasons why I want to believe this, but I just don't think I can sustain it. And the psalmist here is saying, join the club. I'm with you. I know what it's like. I know what it's like to come so close to falling. In fact, we could say as we look through the, the pattern of God's people through the Bible, one of the things that we, say, we would say is it wasn't just that we came close to falling, they fell again and again and again and again. From the most portrayed as the most spiritually powerful, leading, authoritative people in the Bible, they slipped, they fell. 
And he's saying, do you know what? I know what that's like. There is a crisis. So let's move to the next C. What's the root? What's the heart of this crisis? The heart of the crisis, I think Psalm 73, like so many parts of the Bible, could have been written for today. It really could have been absolutely written for today. The source of the crisis is in our second C, which is the comparison. He makes a comparison. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. He looks around and he says, here I am. I believe in this God, this eternal God. Look at me. I look around and what I see is people don't have worries. They have wealth, they have prosperity, they're secure. Surely, surely that's what it should be like. Surely that's how it should be if I believe in this great, powerful God. Surely I should be okay. But when I look around, that's not what I see. My comparison tells me that what I believe doesn't stack up with my day-to-day lived experience. My day-to-day lived experience is in negative contrast to what I think I should have if I am trusting in this all-powerful, all-glorious God. I make a comparison and it puts me in a problem. But just, just watch how the psalmist writes it. Look at how he words this. I, as for me, my feet had slipped. I had nearly lost my footing. For I envied the arrogant. I slipped because I made that comparison. It's exactly what he's saying. These are not separated ideas. He's saying the slip that I made was when I made the comparison with those who looked like they've got it made. Like, like they're just breezing through life. The comparison was the slip. That's a, if we can get that into our thinking, that shapes the way we read the rest of the psalm. The comparison is the slipping. The net third C we see. See what I did there? The third C we see uh, is the confidence. We see the confidence that they have. Look at verse 6 to 12. I, I just... Some of you who might not be into this, you might not be into social media. I think it's really interesting to see the way social media is evolving, isn't it? It's fascinating. Um, there's a whole load, a whole movement now which is saying, actually, this social media thing, it's a real problem. Twitter's had its day. Elon Musk is trying to do his thing and resurrect it under X and all of that kind of thing. Uh, Facebook just kind of owns us. 
Threads comes out and tries to say we'll be the new Twitter and we'll all be nice and kind to each other. I tell you now, human nature tells me that Threads won't be kind in another 18 months, two years, because it's not the platform that's got the problem, it's the people that's got the problem, but anyway, that's an aside. But here we go, just imagine this being written over the top of your phone as you open Instagram. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn the... Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. In other words, what he's saying is underlying, underlying the confidence that they have is the pride in what they believe they have achieved. And the pride in what they believe they have achieved becomes oppressive to everybody around them, but at the same time, people look on it and lap it up. That's what he's saying. He's saying on the one hand, it's the pride and confidence in what they've achieved. Their pride is their arrogance. Their ne the necklace that they wear. And everybody wants it. I find it fascinating just the way society just looks at images of perfect, successful lives doesn't scratch down beneath the surface and understand how that life has been achieved and the way it's oppressed other people to achieve it, but at the same time just chases after it. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. You could, you could use a 21st century kind of analogy to that, and you could say, people just lap it up. They just lap it up. They drink it in. They drink it in and they see the image. They see, if you like, the trickle down, lapping it up, says, I want that as well. I want to be that. I want to achieve that. I want to be there. Now the really critical thing is, in the way this psalm is written, this isn't, this isn't about the kind of outside oppressors. This is the inside God's people oppressors. Because look at what comes next. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know everything? Know anything? Sorry. This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Wow. It's like, don't matter my responsibilities. It doesn't matter what I'm called to do with my possessions. Do you think God knows? I'll just carry on making more. Thank you very much. 
I think one of the most bizarre and paradoxical statements, and I'm, I'm pretty sure the psalmist wrote it in such a way to point out, even in what they say, the ridiculous nature of what they're saying. Look at what he says. Does the Most High know anything? I mean, what a paradox. What a stupid statement that is, actually. Does the Most High know anything? What that is actually doing is it's saying, I'm going to drag the Most High down to my level, to my level of understanding, to my level of insight. And we say, do you think you know, do you think you know anything, God? Do you think you know anything? I, I'm the one who's got it. Who are you? But it's specifically written, I think, to just start to see a chink in the armour of what's being said. So we've got the crisis, we've got the comparison, we've got the confidence. The next C we've got is the contradiction. Because the psalmist starts to really dig deep. Starts to get inside himself and starts to, starts to weigh up this and starts to understand that there's a contradiction in the way that I am. It, it's kind of deeply self-reflective. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. That's where he starts. He says, I'm making this comparison. I look at that. Oh man, I look at that carefree, not a worry in the world, everything secure kind of life. And when I look at that, I think what a waste of time for me to have committed myself with a pure heart to pursuing God. What a waste of time for me to have pursued innocence. Just, just what I'm, I'm wasting my life actually. That is such... That is such an uneasy and dangerous place to be. When we consider the pursuit of righteousness as believers in Jesus and what it often brings compared to the easy life that it seems it could be if we let go of that pursuit of righteousness. John Bunyan portrays it brilliantly in his Pilgrim's Progress when the pilgrims travel through Vanity Fair. They're looking around and they're seeing <laughs> Vanity Fair is deliberately built right on the way of the king. It's a brilliant... It's a, the, the pictures, if you haven't read it, just read Pilgrim's Progress. If you can't cope with the um, Old English, read the kids' version, which is just as amazing, Little Christian's Pilgrimage, or it's now available in the new version as well. Read it because it's brilliant. It is genius. Vanity Fair is built in the way of the king. 
deliberately so that the pilgrims have to travel through an experience just like this. Where everything looks just so carefree and easy. There's plenty of food. There's no hard journey to go on. Just stay here. Just stay here. Forget that journey to the celestial city. Forget that pursuit of righteousness. Why? Look at the state of you turning up. You've shattered. You're filthy. You're hungry. Stay in Vanity Fair and everything's available. It's exactly the same idea pulled up in Pinocchio, isn't it? Exactly the same idea. Come to the fair and everything's just amazing and beautiful and wonderful. And it's all great. And it captures eventually the life of faithful. And he gives his life rather than hold on to Vanity Fair. An amazing moment in the book. But this is where the psalmist is. He says, I'm looking around, I'm looking around Van Vanity Fair and everything looks amazing. It's, it's just been vanity for me to have been pursuing the way of the king. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. But then there's a little turn here. Look at verse 15. Then he says, but if I'd spoken like that, I would have betrayed your children. Fascinating thing that we see at this moment, and I think it really clicks in that statement, is the psalmist is saying all of this to God. He's looking at the challenge, he's looking at the comparison, he's seeing the confidence of those. He's now dig digging deep into his contradiction and he's saying, but if I'd actually verbalized this, I'd have betrayed your children. But in trying to understand it, I am deeply troubled. I I've just had the privilege on so many occasions to, it's hard to talk through tough times in people's lives who are hoping in Jesus at the same time. Just hard things. And I think verse 16 can sit almost as a banner over those times for so many of us. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. I love that. There isn't an ABC 123 to make suffering in life as a believer in Jesus an easy answer. There just isn't. It's deeply troubling. It's hard to understand. It's perplexing. He wakes up in the morning and this seems there's new punishments. Everything is hard. And as I'm grappling with it, as I'm trying to work through it, I come to this, this reflective point that says, this is deeply, deeply troubling. And in there is the contradiction. 
I'm holding on to something. You see what he's doing? He's saying, I'm being open about this. I'm telling this is what it's really like. But there's something that holds me back from verbalizing it and disturbing your children. But I'll talk to you, God, because I believe that you'll listen. You know those really, really difficult times? I think this is actually the only place you ultimately can go. And it's the greatest encouragement in our Christian walk that there are moments where we feel absolutely on our knees at the end of it, like there's no hope. And we look at it and we say, I'm on my knees here. I'm turning to you. I don't know what's going on. I'm deeply perplexed. But in that act is faith. Because we're going to God and we're saying, I don't know what's going on. And how to cope with this. There's the faith. There's something going on inside of you and me at that moment in time which is actually causing us to express I'm coming to you because I've got nowhere else to go. Contradiction. Number four, the crisis, the comparison, the confidence, the contradiction. Number five, the comprehension. Here's the bit where he understands it. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply, verse 16. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. See, that that is like, you ever, ever, as a kid, walk up a seesaw? You're kind of walking uphill. And and you get to the, the fulcrum point, if you want to be engineering technical, you tip over the other side. This is the tipping point of this psalm. This is where it goes from uphill to downhill. The moment where he started to get it, the moment where he comprehended, where he understood, where it made sense, was when he came into the presence of God. I'll tell you, it is the only place. Other people might be there with you. You might have somebody who prays with you in the presence of God. But ultimately, the only place where you will find comprehension, it is not in talking to other people. It is in the presence of God. You might be in the presence of God with other people. Absolutely. But it demands the presence of God for you to begin to comprehend. Look at what he said. How did he... How did that tipping point work? Because all that he's been doing is saying they they just live this easy life. I've got it all wrong. Then I understood their final destination. That's when it clicked. That's when it worked. That's when I worked it out. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. 
How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. See what he see the turning point? Where did it start? It says I slip I was slipping. My foot was slipping, my handhold was gone. I was the one who was slipping. But in verse 18, he realizes it's not me that's slipping, it's them that's slipping. Anybody who places any hope, any trust, any confidence in anything outside of God is slipping. Because it's not eternal, it's not permanent. It's not secure. And he comes into the presence of God and it's that turning point where he realizes, of course, every single one of us in our lives, we have those basic human security factors. You know, we need to, we need to eat. We need to be warm. We need to have relationships. We need to be protected. We need to have all of those things to feel secure. That, that's, that's human experience. Because that's what it is like to live in this world. We need those things. But when all of those things are taken away, has it all gone? And the confidence, as we sang in that song, which I spent some time thinking about, our confidence is that an eternal God with an eternal dimension beyond the things that we hold on to in this life is our comprehension that eternity is our security. If, if literally everything that gives you security goes tomorrow, if you believe in Jesus, you are still secure. Because eternity is the security. That's exactly what we see in the book of Job. Everything goes. Everything goes. But he's still secure. And then we come to the comfort. Yeah, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. Hey, hang on. I thought you were slipping. I thought you were slipping at the beginning of this. And now you're saying... I wasn't slipping anyway. You had hold of me. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's the eternal dimension. I've got everything in heaven if I've got you. And earth has nothing I desire besides you. He's saying, look, if I make the comparison, everything's about heaven, nothing is about the temporary world that we live now my flesh and my heart may fail but god is my strength is the strength of my heart and my portion how long is he my strength and my portion forever those who are far from you will perish you destroy all who are unfaithful to you but as for me it is good to be near god 
do you know what? You could, you could almost carry that round as a mantra for life. It is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. That's the comfort. We've only got six there. Because how can we know it now? The final one is the Christ. We could go to so many of Jesus' stories, parables, explanations, and we could write this psalm over the top of so many of them. In fact, there were so many I was trying to say, well, which one do we pick out to just try to, try to explain that Jesus is the very hope that we're relying on, that Jesus is the Christ? It is really annoying when your Chromebook goes off. That is not a help. He tells a parable. Uh, in fact, it's two short verses. Matthew chapter 13, I think it is. I don't know if it was switched on. Um, he tells a parable of a man who finds a pearl. When he finds this pearl, he realizes that's the treasure I've been looking for. It's everything. It's everything. And I'll, I'll let go of everything to buy that pearl. But what does he say? Why does Jesus tell that story? He says it like this. He says, the kingdom of heaven, everything that we've been talking about, is like a pearl trader who sells everything to gain one pearl. And in so many ways, we would look at that and we would say, that's how valuable Jesus is. Get, just sell everything in metaphoric terms. Don't hold on to every, anything, is what the parable is saying. I was talking to somebody a few days ago, and they raised a really fascinating little insight. They said this, it's so easy for us to think that the kingdom of heaven is like that. It's about us recognizing that Jesus is the treasure and letting go of everything for that. And that is true. That is true, absolutely. But there's another way that we can look through the lens of that particular parable, and it's like this. We're the treasure. We're the treasure. And Jesus, according to Philippians, let go of everything. Every treasure that he possessed in glory, he let go of everything to pursue and to find the treasure. And the kingdom of heaven is like that as well. It's like that. It's a God who strips himself of all glory, all riches, all security, all hope, all confidence, nosedives into the mess and disgust of this world 
and finds everyone who believes and makes them his treasure. That's pretty amazing. But it's also the absolute confidence that says that if I know that of God, if he's like that, now I, I'm not slipping, actually. I'm not falling. You see, coming back to Doug Scott at the beginning, when he slammed into the rock face and he broke both legs, he is so much a picture of you and me. He stood no chance. But the only way he survived is because somebody came to his rescue. Somebody came to his rescue and said, Doug, you're going to get through this. You're going to be okay. Bonington says he, he didn't dare think about anything other than the next immediate problem that they faced. Because the overall problem was just way too big to come to terms with. Doug Scott needed a rescuer. And that is exactly what we have in the Christ, the Son of the living God.